Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to go verses 9 down through verse 13. Try to finish out the chapter. And we're going to talk about the particular focus of church discipline. We've talked about the painful act. We've talked about the purifying effect. And now we're going to talk about the particular focus of church discipline. Discipline. Since we're dealing with sin and we're dealing with church discipline, I, I heard something a little humorous. It's kind of a heavy subject, but I heard something kind of humorous the other day. I, one of the church members came and shared this with me. He said there was a service and the invitation was given and a man came down the aisle broken, weeping, came to the pastor. The pastor said, sir, what, what can I do for you? He said, I need to repent. And he was weeping and the pastor said, what of? He said, 10 years ago, I took my wife to Germany to visit her mother. And the pastor said, that's good. Why would you repent of that? He said, well, God just spoke to me that I need to go and get her. <laughs> uh, also, since our last message, I've learned a lot about cooking. <laughs> I have learned a lot about cooking, especially what I don't know about it. I have learned that you don't put yeast into cakes and you don't put yeast into biscuits. So thank you, ladies, for being so careful to correct me there. The moral to that story is, don't let me do your cooking. <laughs> uh, I, the lesson I have is, you cook it, I'll eat it. I, we don't have to explain it. That'd be the best thing. Well, me, I, I said, I told the illustration that my mother was baking a cake and the yeast was causing it to rise. I thought it was yeast. I didn't, something was causing it to rise. And I did not know that you didn't put yeast in the case. Well, some of you may be wondering, well, what does yeast got to do with anything? I missed the last service. Well, let me help you. Look at verse six of chapter five. The word, or verse, I'm sorry, yeah, verse six, chapter five. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now you say, well, Wayne, that's leaven. What, is, what, how, what does that have to do with yeast? Well, leaven is yeast. And that's where it came up. And that's what, and you say, well, what does that have to do with church discipline? Well, Yeast is that which causes fermentation in dough <laughs> and then causes it to rise. And since that time, since I've been corrected, I had to find out a little bit more about yeast. I found out that yeast feeds on sugar and also the gluten that's in flour. And the more it feeds upon it, then the higher it begins to rise. But the interesting thing about this is on the inside, it's hollow but it's rising on the outside. Have you been to one of these restaurants that are, they give you that nice, good looking yeast roll? Now I know that yeast is in it, 
And I, I, I've eaten it. <laughs> and, you, and you get it and, you, and you, you put your knife into it to cut it. And when you cut it, what is it like? It just goes, it's flat on the inside. Remember the word arrogant that's used in chapter five? He says, you've become arrogant. What's the word? Fusio, which means air bags. How sin causes something to rise up inside of you, but it's hollow on the inside. You see, there's nothing, there's no substance there. But you know what? You know what it is that decreases the work of leaven? It's salt. Now, if you just have a little imagination and a little creative mind, you can take the scriptures and have a ball with that one. We are salt in this world. And what does salt do when leaven's around? It causes it to decrease its, its activity. It feeds upon sugar. And so therefore we have the, the understanding then that yeast or leaven is a picture of sin. And Paul is trying to show the Corinthian church all about that. He says a little leaven causes the whole, affects the whole lump. Yeast or leaven works in dough, as we said, like cancer works in the body. Silently eating away at one's witness and character. And if it's not dealt with, it can bring about destruction and death. It's a very silent enemy. And folks, I, I'm going to tell you this straight out. It can destroy a church. You think a church that teaches the word of God is going to be protected? Oh, no, no. The only, the only way it's protected is when the people receive the word of God and deal with the leaven that the word of God exposes in their life. If you allow sin in your life and I allow sin in my life, it's like it begins to silently decay and it feeds on that. On the, on, the, on the willingness and the yieldedness that we give to it, it feeds on it and it can destroy a church. I was over in North Carolina <clears throat> and a pastor came to me and of the church and he said, Wayne, do you know how many pastors are being run out of churches per month? And I said, no, I don't have any idea. He said, 150 on the average month, 150 pastors are forced to resign their churches nationwide. 150 per month. Now you just start calculating that a little bit. How many is that a day? And you say, well, what's going on? And I'll tell you what, folks, when sin is allowed to remain inside of an individual and the kind of sin we're dealing with here in 1 Corinthians is in the, in the people, not in this immoral man that we're dealing with, but the kind of sin we're dealing with is a silent kind of sin. You see, they were spiritually proud. They were arrogant, puffed up. They really thought they were something. And the apostle Paul is nailing them to the wall with the fact that they're just nothing more than spiritual airbags. That destroys a church. It starts with the individual. Each one of us, and since we're going through this 40 days of prayer, it's a time for us to deal. Don't point your finger at somebody else. Get before God and let God speak to your own heart because sin can destroy a church. Sin can destroy a family. And you know that already. Sin can destroy a family. Sin can destroy any relationship. If it's not dealt with on an individual basis, it can destroy. It's like cancer. And if it's not dealt with, if it's not, if it's not treated, then what it'll do, it will destroy. So the Apostle Paul says, get the leaven of sin out of the church. Now, the specific leaven that he's talking about here, we already know that, back in verse 1, is an immoral man. There's an immoral man here that has been living in sin, incest, the sin of incest, with his father's wife. Look back in verse 1, just to make sure we keep all this tied together. He said, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, as someone has his father's wife, the sin of incest. 
Now, the very fact that it has been reported signifies that everybody in the town knew about it. They had no witness whatsoever on the outside of the church. Now, the apostle Paul is trying to show them this. He spends one verse on the man's sin. He spends the rest of the chapter on their unwillingness to deal with the man's sin. Well, he explains why church discipline is so important. And we did that in our last message in verses six through eight. And as I said earlier in verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little, the word micro, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I mean, you let a little bit stay there on an individual basis or on a corporate basis. If it, and, if, and the more it stays, it's going to affect all the different people that's in the body of Christ. And if it's an individual, every area of his life. Well, verse 7, look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we review a bit. He says, clean out the old leaven. The word old leaven means that which has been long standing. And in the context, it would have to be this sin that he's dealing with. That you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now the term new lump is an important term. What is, it's a word that doesn't mean you're gonna be qualitatively new, but what it means is you'll have a new look to the people that are around you. He said because you won't deal with this sin, you have no witness with the Corinthian people. And if you will deal with sin and deal with this man, you'll have a fresh look amongst the people. The word neos is used. And the word neos means new in relation to time. You haven't had a good relationship with them. You haven't had a good witness, but you can have if you'll deal with this sin that's there in your life. You see, the church of Corinth needed, re needed revival, needed repentance in their life. They needed repentance in their church to deal with sin. That would send a signal to the lost people around them that they really do stand for something and that Christ truly lived in their life. And then he says, you are in fact unleavened. And what he means by that is, since Christ lives in us, he has washed us and cleansed us and he has delivered us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. So therefore, leaven has no place in our life, has no place in the life of the church. Paul takes them back to the Old Testament and reminds them of this principle. It goes all the way back to Genesis, um, all the way back through. Sin is sin, and we must deal with it. Look at verse 8. He takes them back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you know when the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place? It took place the seven days before the Passover. For seven days, they were to get the leaven out of their houses. And he takes them back to that. He says, let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice is the garment of flesh. Wickedness is what it does. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is how we're to live, in sincerity and in truth. Now, there's an interesting point here. He takes them back and reminds them of this feast. He reminds them of the Passover, who is Christ to us. And he also reminds them of the feast of the unleavened bread. And he says, they had to celebrate it once a year, just once a year, to remind them of their delivery out of Egypt and, and how the lamb and the blood that was shed, how they were all delivered because of the lamb. But he said, for us, let us celebrate the feast. He puts it in the present tense. Where they did it once a year, we live this way. We're constantly getting the leaven out of our life. That's the way we live. And so Paul takes them back and reminds them of this. We can't celebrate Christ being our Passover until we're willing to deal with the sin that he set us free from. And if a person won't get the leaven out of his life, then he doesn't understand the victory that he has in Jesus. He's got to learn to deal with sin. And the church itself has got to learn to deal with sin. Well, we celebrate the fact that Christ is our Passover 
with the unleavened bread of sincerity and with truth. Now we've looked at, again, at the painful act of church discipline. We've looked at the purifying effect. That's really verses six through eight. And now we're going to look at the particular focus of church discipline. What is that focus? Church discipline does not deal with the lost. Church discipline deals with the saved. In your Bible, do you find anywhere where Paul says to deal with a woman that was involved in this immoral relationship? Not once. What does that tell you? It tells you that most likely she was an unbeliever. But he says, deal with a man. And that means he must have been a believer. You never as a church deal with unbelievers with church discipline. You deal with believers with church discipline. That's the particular focus of church discipline. You witness to the unbeliever, but you deal with the believer. That's the key that we're going to look at. And several things that I want you to see. Let's read verses 9 through 13 together. Then we'll go back and look at it. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, three things let's look at. First of all, I want us to look at a lost letter. A lost letter. Look at verse nine. Did I catch your attention? He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Do you realize what he's telling us? There's a lost letter somewhere. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someday in one of the discoveries they would find that lost letter? Paul has already written to the church of Corinth, but we don't have any record of that letter. And that bothers some people. That really bothers some people. Some people say that, uh-huh, that proves that we don't have all of the word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, that just couldn't be God's word because Paul wrote another letter. And then you get over in Colossians and find that there's another letter. You'll find other letters that have not been found. And they say, we don't have all of God's word. Now, I, I had written down in my notes, that's hogwash. I, I, don't, I won't say that. <laughs> just did, didn't I? <laughs> that's just erroneous thinking, okay? <laughs> hogwash, that's my way of putting it. That, that's erroneous thinking. You realize to admit to someone that you don't think we have the word of God because there's certain lost epistles is to admit that you don't understand the providence of God, nor do you understand the sovereignty of God. It's as simple as a nose on your face. If God wanted us to have it, he'd have been found, but he wasn't found. So God doesn't want us to have it, and what we have is what he wanted us to have. It's incredible to me how the intellectuals make this a much more complicated issue. Not a complicated issue at all. It's just a matter of, of sense. If you believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, it ought to be good enough. He gave us what he wanted us to have. You know, I don't know how many of you got a chance to go to the AAA banquet the other night. It was wonderful. The speaker was the best, I guess, I'd ever heard. And the logic she used, she was talking about having to go on television and debate some of these scholars who have academically taken a subject and made it totally confusing. Nobody even understands it anymore. And she had said, the only thing I've ever debated was whether or not to have hamburger or chicken for supper. She said, I didn't know, I didn't know how to debate these people. And so she got on the air and they said, they said, do you understand that a baby when it's conceived is only tissue, it's not a life? 
And she said, I didn't know how to handle these people with all their intellect. And she said, I just said, well, if it's not a life, we ain't got a problem then, do we? Why kill it? Because how can you kill something that's not a life? Why, why, why even deal with it if it's not a life? And then they say, well, it is a life, but it's not a human life. And she said, well, good. We still don't have a problem. If it's not a human life, let it grow. Maybe it's a carrot. <laughs> I'm telling you, folks, if we would just think sometimes, I guarantee you, you can take that verse nine and you can get lost in some of the academic scholarly ways of having to handle that verse. It's simple. If God wanted us to have it, he'd give it to us. Since he didn't, he didn't give it to us. So it's law. So big deal. We've got the scriptures as all scriptures are inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. Now in this letter that was lost, Paul evidently was correcting problems even back then. This is a church that doesn't seem to learn anything. And he was teaching them not to associate with immoral people. Now the word for associate is a word that I, I'm, I'd have to get Simeon or somebody else to help me say this one. It's about this long. It's the word seen, <laughs> ana, okay, mignefni, I think. Is that close, Simeon? That's close, okay. It, 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 it's a big old word. It's a great big word, all right? Here's what it means. <laughs> the word seen is a key. The word associate is the second part of it, but the word seen is an intimate uh, mix, to mix something together intimately. Now, you understand that you can be with somebody, associated with them, talking with them, living alongside them, and not have th this word take place. This is a word to where you fellowship with, socialize with, mix with, mingle with all the time. Now, that's his, that's his warning. It doesn't mean that you don't ever share with them or don't ever talk to them or anything like that. It means not to socialize, to in intermingle with these people. He said, I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people. Paul, of course, is pointing again to the fact that to associate with immoral people, and he also gives a list later on, he's going to share that in a moment, is like flirting with leaven. And we already know that leaven does damage. And so if a person is known to have habitual leaven in their life, you don't go mingle with them. You don't go make fellowship relationships with them. You may have to work with them. You may live next door to them, but you, you don't pursue a mingle, mixed relationship with them because leaven is going to affect you. Don't do that in the world or in the church. So there was a lost letter. They knew this. This is not the first time they'd heard this. And now Paul has to write to them again. So the first thing we see is a lost letter. The second thing we want to look at is a lack of understanding. They just somehow didn't get the point. Now, whether or not they chose not to get it or whether or not they really didn't get it, I don't know. He, the Corinthians evidently did not understand Paul's command in his, in his lost letter, we don't have, which was not to associate with immoral people. It appears that they thought he, that he meant the immoral lost people of the world. But Paul was actually writing to tell them not to associate with the immoral people in the church. <laughs> now, careful, he didn't mean by that, oh, go out and associate with the lost because you need to win them to Jesus. That's not what he meant. You don't do that anymore with them than you do with anybody. But he, he really, his focus was not on the world. His focus was on the church. And remember Corinth. Corinth was the most wicked city in the world at that time. You just don't flirt with leaven and so therefore you don't do it in the church or in the world. You witness to the people in the world, 
but you don't associate with what they're doing. You don't participate in what they're doing. And that's what that word associate has to do. Evidently, evidently, now the only thing I can draw, they refused in their arrogance, their spiritual airbag arrogance, (laughs) to associate with the sinful unbelievers in the world, but at the same time, tolerated the sinful people within the church. Now that's interesting, isn't it? They wouldn't deal with the sin in the church, but oh, they had a testimony to others that they didn't associate with the immoral people of the world. They stood in judgment of the lost, but wouldn't deal with sin in their own camp. Does that remind you of anything we studied in the book of Romans? Look back in the book of Romans just for a second. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32, Paul talks about the rebellious Gentile world. And that's the world. That's the lost world. Every nation ever been on this earth other than Israel itself, God raised it up. But every nation has been a pagan nation. None of them have ever honored God. And in chapter one, he nails that. He he shows the guilt that they have. But in chapter two and verse one, look what he said. Chapter two, verse one of Romans. Therefore, you are without excuse. Now, who's the you? Down in verse 17 of chapter two, he says, if you call yourself Jew, then you are, and and that's who he's talking about. He's shifted gears now. He shifted from the Gentiles. Now he shifted over to the religious Jewish world at that time. And he says, therefore you, you Jewish people are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment on these pagan Gentiles. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. And that was the judgment against the religious world. They loved to stand in condemnation of the lost, but they would not deal with sin in their own camp. It hit me as I was studying this. Look look back over chapter five now, 1 Corinthians. Give you time to turn back. In verse six, I want you to see something. I couldn't understand. What was their boast? He he makes a statement in chapter six. It's bugged me all the way down until I hit this. Look at verse six of chapter five. He says, your boasting is not good. And for the first time, I think I understand what they were boasting in. They were saying, ha, we don't associate with the immoral sinful world. We're holy before God. That was their boasting. But that boasting, he says, the word fusio, yeah, you sound good on the outside, but there's nothing to you on the inside because you won't deal with the same sin that's in your own church. Now let's bring it down to where we live. Let's bring it down to where we live. There are people in Chattanooga who make great statements. Maybe you're one of them. Brother Wayne, I'm holy. I'm holy. I love God. I don't go to movies. I don't go to movies. I don't run around with those who do. I don't smoke. I don't chew. (laughs) And we've got these little things that the world does that we bring up. But let me ask you a question. If you don't go to movies... How many videos did you rent last year? God told me right here in this city, it runs a video store. He said, Wayne, you would not believe the people, and I know who they are, who make these bold statements of how they're separated from the world, and they're the first ones to be in here when the door is open. Now, I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying, don't we love to make our boast when we're not willing to deal with a sin in our own lives? People that are all the goody two-shoes of the world today, they come across as the spiritual ones. Braggadocious. Look out. Because in their own individual lives, I guarantee you, in their families, 
and wherever else they're associated, there's sin that's not being dealt with. Because I want to tell you something. The mark of a person that's separated unto God is not arrogance, it's humility. A man who's willing to admit that he's wrong at all times. A man who's willing to deal with sin at all times. But you find those who parade their convictions in front of everybody else. You've got the first Corinthians 5 stigma. Welcome to the church of Corinth. People who say, I don't deal with the world. I'm separated from the world. But they won't deal with sin in their own lives. Remember one night, Doug and Stephen taught me into going to a movie. You remember that movie, Alive? <laughs> well, you don't remember. Like evidently, you didn't see it either. But I saw it. It was about this rugby team that crashed in the Andes Mountains. And it was a true story. And they had to eat one another. I mean, it got so close, they froze and people died. That's how they lived. I remember Stephen in the middle of it turned over and punched me and said, Wayne, or he didn't say Wayne. He said, Dad. <laughs> but I say Wayne. He said, Dad. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. He said, Dad, if you'd have been on that plane, they could have survived another six months. <laughs> get out of here, boy. <laughs> we got back in the car. We were riding out and they said, oh, I hope nobody saw you, Dad. Because in this city, boy, going to a movie is sinful. I want to tell you something, folks. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's between you and God. But the next time you start priding yourselves as, as if you don't do what the world does and you don't associate with those immoral people, you better go home, look in a mirror and make sure you're dealing with sin in your own life. Gossip, attitude. Oh, we don't even talk about that, do we? Oh, no, no, no. And if we're not dealing with it, friend, then don't ever open your mouth what you don't do what the world does. Corinth had a boasting about them, but the leaven had so puffed them up, it made them hollow. And that's why they were spiritual airbags. That's all they were, you see. And they took Paul's command not to be with the immoral people and said, that's the immoral people of the world, so therefore we won't associate with them <laughs> and that'll be our testimony while they wouldn't even deal with sin in their own Life. Well, Paul clears that up in verse 10. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world <laughs> or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, people don't like church discipline because that's people in the body. Oh, no, 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 no. We like to condemn the ones out in the world. The literal translation of verse 10 makes it a little clearer than the New American Standard does to me. The literal is in, in verse 10 in, in, in the New American Standard says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. That's the New American Standard version. But in the literal, if you just read it literally, it'd be this. Not entirely the immoral people of the world is what he says. And then he adds to it, or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You see, all of us live among the people of the world. Remember the key here is to mingle and mix, to socialize. That's the whole key. Do not associate with immoral people. If you, if you try to not associate with anybody who fits that category of all the list that he just gave, Paul says, you'd have to leave the planet. <laughs> To do so, you have to leave the world. You live amongst these people. You work amongst these people. You can't at all cover this commandment and say you're not to, you have to have any dealings with them at all. Yes, don't socialize with them. Yes, don't mingle with them. 
But be amongst them. You, you can be in the world, but not of the world. We cannot isolate ourselves from them. We can't insulate ourselves from them. We're to attach ourselves to Christ as chapters one, two, and three. It's so brought out. He will be the witness in our life. We will be salt. And that salt will, will begin to decrease some of the things that they're doing. It stops the work of leaven. But we can never join them in their spiritual traits. Paul doesn't just single out immoral of the world. He covers the habitual sins in the list. It's not just the immoral. There are other sins there. Uh, we're not to socialize with the habitual sinful of the world. We're not to mingle with them. We're not to mix with them. And again, hear me, the balance. Work alongside them, yes. Share with them, yes. Pray for them, yes. But don't socialize with them. Now, the Greek word here for uh, when he talks about these categories of sin is a substantive. And what it means is it's a habitual sinner in that area. Not somebody who committed that sin one time or whatever. But this is a person who lives habitually in these known sins. Not just immorality, but he goes on. He says covetous. The word covetous is an interesting word, isn't it? You know, by the way, there are different roots of sin. Maybe one of these in your life. Covetous. One who is never satisfied with what he has and always covets more. But it means more than that. You, you can have a person like that and not even know it. It has to be something overt that you would identify about him. And he goes, I think the word has to do, it suggests that he will defraud a person for gain and he's doing it. He'll defraud you. You know what defrauding means? He'll, he'll come on you with a, with a big front, but he's really after something else in your life. He will defraud you to get what he wants because he's covetous and he's never satisfied with what he has. And so he says, that's a sin. Just like immorality is a sin. That's a sin. And it's a habitual sin to some people. Don't associate with them or that leaven of covetousness will become to affecting your life and you'll end up wanting what they want without realizing it. And then he talks about swindlers. And the word swindlers uh, is the word, it comes from the word means to seize. It's one who secretly steals from another. That word actually in its secular use comes from a wolf that preys upon other animals. And he secretly is stealing things from that other person. A swindler. He'll, he'll you know, we use the word, he'll jip you, you know, that kind of idea. And then it's the word idolatry. Boy, you know, you think about something here. You think about how our world operates and how we're not to mix and mingle with people who are living these types of lifestyle. I tell you what, boy, as a Christian, when you go out in the marketplace, it's a fine line you draw, isn't it? And God says, be careful, associate with them in the sense of praying for them, do business with them if you have to, but remember your witness and remember don't mingle with them, don't mix with them, don't let them get into you because that leaven of sin will affect you. And then he uses the word idolaters. And the word idolater comes from two words. The first word means idol. And the second word means a servant or a worshiper of that idol. And so an idol worshiper, an idol servant. Now, you, you go, remember the history of Corinth? Corinth had more idols there than probably any city in the known world. If you wanted to worship an idol, you'd have to flip a coin because there were so many of them. And they were everywhere in the area of Corinth. And he says, hey, these people that worship these idols, you may have to do business with them for some reason or another. You may have to live next door to them. But I want to tell you something. Don't you dare socialize and mingle and mix with them because what their sin is, it will in turn affect you. Well, he adds two to the list of verse 10 when he deals with the church. Look at verse 11. He says, but actually, his point's really clear here. The same sin that's out there is in the church. It's already affected the church. And they're to deal with that and remove them from their midst that they won't repent. Verse 11. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person. Now, 
If you stop right there, everybody says, mm -hmm, I can understand that. It doesn't stop right there. Or covetous, or idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Look at the two that he adds. He adds the word reviler, which is the word that, that's similar to blaspheme. A blasphemer is one who with his tongue and with his mouth behind somebody else's back will tear their reputation down, even if he has to lie to do it. That's a reviler. Are they in the church of Jesus Christ, Brother Wayne? <laughs> Are you kidding me? But we don't deal with them, do we? Oh, the immoral, we'll deal with them. Ha. Why don't we deal with the people who run around starting rumors? Why don't we deal with the people who can't keep their mouth shut and gossip and tear people down to force their own opinion on somebody? Why don't we do that? I don't know why we don't do it. Church of Corinth didn't either. But then he uses the word drunkard. Drunkard? Why well, you couldn't have a drunkard in the church of Jesus Christ, could you? <laughs> Absolutely. And so he says, hey, yes, there's sin out here. And you, no, you don't go socialize with those people who have habitual sin patterns like that. You, you witness to them. You're insulated from their sin when you go to witness because you have a purpose in your life. If you have to deal with them, always be prayed up when you deal with them, but don't socialize with them. But he said, that's not even my point. That wasn't what I was talking about. I was talking about the immoral people within the church. You see, they had either misunderstood willingly or unwillingly what Paul was talking about. He said, that's your problem. Has been all along. You have a, what you call a testimony of separation from the world. Sounds good to everybody else, but you aren't dealing with sin in your own camp. The Corinthian believers were boasting that they did not associate with these sinful people. While at the same time, they were not willing to deal with sin in their own church. That's why he told them, you are spiritual airbags. That's what you are. On the outside of an airbag, it may look good. But when you pop it, there's nothing on the inside. That's what he said. You know, I'll tell you, <laughs> whew, we've said this many times. I, do, you, do you like this chapter? I don't like this chapter. I, I've been having a tough time wading through it. When you preach verse by verse, you don't skip these verses. You just have to deal with them. But you know, it's finally dawned on me over the years, and it's, it keeps dawning on me because I forget. When I look in a mirror in the morning, that's the biggest problem I'm facing all day long. And if I'm not willing to deal with what I look at in the mirror in the morning, I'm a spiritual airbag. And spiritual pride, just like at Corinth, has sucked itself into my life. And through my opinion of what I think I am, instead of what God's opinion, as Paul said earlier in chapter 4, of what he says that we are. See? So be careful what you tell somebody that you are until you've checked in. You may have not dealt with the sin in your own life, neither have I. You see, all of us at the ground's level at the cross. So a lost letter and a lack of understanding. But the third thing we deal with in the last two verses here, we get a look at the judge. We're going to get a look at the judge here. Who, who's going to handle the lost people of the world and et cetera? Well, look at verse 12 and 13. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders, Paul said? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, Paul is an apostle, and his authority is given by God himself over the churches. Paul didn't have authority over the lost people in the world. He has a burden for them. And so he takes the message, and he preaches the gospel to them. But he's not out judging them. He says, my authority is within the church. For what do I have? What, I, what do I have to do with judging outsiders, he said. You don't see me going around judging outsiders and, and telling them they, can, they can't do this or they can't do that. 
He answers his own question by asking the next one. And then he turns it to them. Okay, look at me. Do I judge the outsiders? No, I witness to them. I care about them. I pray for them. Now let's turn to you, he says. And he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? I already know about you, he says. You're already judging them out there. You're different from me. And as if you're, are you not going to judge the people within the church? Is that what you're telling me? You see, they were refusing to judge the one in the church. They're missing the whole point. They're judging all the sin in the world, but they're not willing to deal with sin in their own camp. And Paul is still showing them that their arrogance was in the fact that they did not judge their own sin. Obviously, they weren't sharing the gospel to the lost if they'd already judged them in Corinth, if they were refusing to even be around them. Now, the unfaithful believer, here's the dilemma. The unfaithful believer actually has two judges. And this is what church discipline brings to help us to understand. It's why we practice it here at Woodland Park. He has two judges. The first judge he has is God. Now, when you turn him loose and you remove him from the congregation, if you don't think God is not going to judge him, <laughs> you don't understand scripture. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 through 32. And I want you to see this. The first judge that the unrepentant believer has is God himself. God will deal with him. Don't worry about it. God will take care of that. Sends his business to, to deal with. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent. But 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 through 32. This is interesting because this is about the, when they're dealing with the Lord's Supper. We read this in a previous message dealing with church discipline, but I want to read it again in light of this context. He says in verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by whom? By the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, God is going to deal with us when we're disciplined. God takes it over. And he says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are dead because of your unwillingness to be faithful before God. Now, that God, God does that, and we don't do that. That's what God does. But the second judge that an unrepentant believer has is the body of believers. You see, as a matter of fact, the body of believers make the initial decision to remove him if he's unwilling to repent. Now remember, unwilling to repent is the key. Not just sin, unwilling to repent of that sin. That's the key, that's an attitude. And if he won't repent of it, they, they become his, his judge. And so when he's removed, then God takes over from there. So there are two judges in his life. You know, I, I wanna share something with you that a lot of people don't believe in church membership. I have run into this more in our country. I did not know that there are other denominations that don't believe in church membership. And I think on a lot of churches like ours and other churches, people many times come and come and come and come and come and never join and that's sort of convenient. But you know what church membership is? If anything ought to show us that it's right, is this right here. Church membership is accountability. Do you realize in the laws of the state of Tennessee that if someone was here and committing sin and not a member of this church, we cannot do one single thing. It's already been tried in court and the people won for the suiting on slander. And so a lot of people know that. And so they come to a church and say, hey, I'm just gonna sit and soak and enjoy it and don't have to have any responsibility, don't have to join. Therefore, when I sin, nobody can deal with me. But I hate to tell you, there are two judges, remember? If you cut out one, then really what you're doing is committing spiritual suicide because you're putting yourselves into the hands of a living God. And Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of a living God. Personally, I'd rather have the church discipline me before God got his hands on me. 
Now he's told the church what to do. <laughs> Buddy, I want, God knows exactly how to do it. That's what the church is here for. To keep a person from having to go through what this individual is obviously going to go through in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're not going to join, then what's the deal? There's no accountability. And there's nobody that can deal with you except on a brother on a one-on-one -on -one basis perhaps coming to you. That's about it. Your, your act of repentance is, is something that the church can have really no part in. But God will have a part in it. Don't worry about that. There are two judges. However, I just wanted to say that. Spot to my mind, that was a good time to say it. <laughs> you ought to think about joining up because you become accountable then and we'll work alongside you. And then you hold us accountable, we'll hold you accountable, we'll all walk together. So when we stand before God one day, the work will not be burned up at the test of fire. That's what it's all about. It's to encourage, to, to hold each other accountable so that when we get there one day, we won't have our work burned up. Verse 13, chapter five says, but those who are outside, God judges. <laughs> Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, there are not many ways that we can do. You know, sometimes I was, we were joking, and I won't, <laughs> I won't say this on tape later on, but we were joking one day in the staff. I said, you know, what I really think we need is a spiritual hit squad. <laughs> now, I don't mean that. Now, don't go off and tell somebody I, I've really meant that, but I, in frustration, I've said those things before. I mean, you like somebody show up the next week and say, where's such and such, man? That old vile sinner that's been in the church. I don't know, man, just disappeared. I, it's the funniest thing, just, just disappeared. <laughs> no, that's not the way to do it. But you think about it sometimes. We can't put them in jail. We can't take them out behind the church and beat them up. But the one thing we can do is discipline them in love in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as he told us how to do it and with mourning and grieving in our hearts so that they can understand. He tells us not even to eat with them. When you have a sinful person in the church that will not repent of that sin, you are not in any way to mingle with that person. Yes, you can pray for him. Yes, you can share with him. Yes, you can call him and tell him what you're doing. But when it comes to the fellowship part, no, sir. Nothing that allows that person to think for a second that his sin is tolerated in the body of believers. That's pretty serious stuff. I didn't write this, by the way. <laughs> So if you get upset, you let's have to take it up with the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He wrote it. I didn't write it. But it sends a signal to the sinful world when we are willing to deal with sin within the church. And there ought to be true grief, as I said. It ought to be done in the name of the Lord and in His power. Well, you know, I, I love the people that have been willing to be honest with me firm with me and address areas of my life that need to be corrected. I've loved that over the years and I've had many to do that. And friend, if there's nobody in your life like that and you're not a member anywhere in a church, you, you see now the need for the church body because when a person comes to you, remember Nathan that came to David in the Old Testament and he walked up and put his finger right in David's face and said, David, you are the man. And when Nathan did that, because David had such a tender heart, he broke. And God later said of him, David has a heart after my own. Because he's willing, not because he's perfect, but because he's willing to repent of sin that's in his life. When Nathan did that, it changed him for the rest of his life. We need that in the body of Christ. Most of us wear our feelings right here on our shoulders. 
And when somebody says the hard things to us, we think they don't like us anymore. And we walk away and won't address what is being said. So, in the body of Christ, we need each other. We need to address sin. If you have a testimony that you don't associate with those immoral people, be real careful how you even say it. We're to love them, be out there to witness to them. But yes, not to socialize and mingle with them. But the real key is not out there. The real key is in here. Are we willing to deal with sin inside the church? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.